please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and breathing and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That cuts us to the quick. It, it removes, it strips away everything. We can, we can only be honest before you. You see everything anyways. And in spite of all that, you love us. You love us eternally, overwhelmingly, never-endingly. You leave the 99 to come find us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth today as we look at your word. That our hearts would be moved and our lives would be changed. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A little over seven years ago, according to a Bangor, Maine news article, a somewhat miraculous story occurred. On January 17, 2013, over in Afghanistan, U.S. soldier PFC Chad Reed lost his wallet during a training exercise far away from his stationed base. He lost it in a street somewhere where the detail was. Now, what, what made it, is that that wasn't stressful enough. What made everything worse was that 21-year-old Private Reed was scheduled to return home the very next day. And that wallet contained all his important information, including his military ID. Without it, he would have been stranded in Afghanistan and unable to be reunited with his family. That could very well have been the ending to this story. He lost his wallet. That's it. But that evening, a civilian aircraft mechanic from the U.S. named Bill Peasley, who was working in Afghanistan, was on his way to get some dinner when he stumbled upon the wallet in the street. He would explain that the sun was setting and it was getting dark and he almost missed it. But providentially, he happened to be at the right place at the right time and was even able to see it before the wallet was picked up by the wrong hands. In it, he found the contact information for Private Reed's grandfather, Bob Meeker, who lived in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Many of you recognize that town, and now less than an hour from Philadelphia off the PA Turnpike. Peasley was able to connect with Meeker and explain what happened. A game of phone tag ensued, with Meeker calling Private Reed's mother in Denver. Right after Private Reed's mother hung up with Meeker, Private Reed called her in a panic over backtracking for hours trying to find his wallet and not finding it, not having any hope. Then he hears the words from his mother, it's already been found. Somebody already found it. Meanwhile, Peasley tried finding Private Reed on Facebook and about 30 minutes of looking found him and sent him a message telling him that he had found his wallet. The two connected and met at a rendezvous point that night. Peasley returned Private Reed's wallet to him and they chatted for a short while. What would have been a small, courteous act in the United States, right? You find a wallet in the parking lot and you go to customer service of the store and drop it off and say, hey, I found a wallet. What would have been a small, courteous act in the United States would have had international ramifications if that wallet was picked up by the wrong people, if that wallet was fell into the wrong hands. And it ended up with a young soldier being able to return home right on schedule. But if this man, Bill Peasley, simply didn't care enough 
about returning the wallet and didn't think it was something he wanted to get involved with or didn't relentlessly try to follow up with these leads, none of it would have happened. This morning, we're going to be talking about something else that was lost, but because of a tenacious and relentless search, that thing was also found. And we're going to be looking at what that reveals to us about God and what he thinks about us, how he sees us. We're back in Matthew again, like I said, with our series on Jesus' parables. So we're going to be in Matthew 18 today. You might think, well, that's a far jump from where we were in Matthew 13. That's five chapters later. This is a huge jump from where we were in Matthew 13 a couple of weeks ago. Now, there are quite a few things that happen in between the last parable we have back in chapter 13 and when Jesus starts teaching in parables again as recorded in this gospel in chapter 18. What happens between these two points is that Jesus miraculously feeds well over 5,000 people and then another 4,000 people, rebukes the Pharisees for their testing of him, and then we have the events of Peter's declaration of who Jesus is, Jesus' transfiguration, and the disciples arguing over who is greatest in Jesus' kingdom. And if that sounds a little bit familiar to you, it should be, because I covered those last three events back in May in my pre-recorded service videos that are still up on our website, if, if, if you forgot about that or you didn't get a chance to watch those yet. Those are up, still up on our website. It's this last event that connects with the parable we're talking about today. The disciples come to Jesus at the beginning of chapter 18, and they boldly ask him, who is the greatest in his kingdom? Imagine being one of his disciples doing that. Hey, 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 Jesus. We all want to know, who's the greatest of us in your kingdom? Tell us right now. Who is the greatest in your kingdom? We can assume they ask this question with the ulterior motive to find out which one of them would have, had, would have the greatest positions in Jesus' coming earthly kingdom. But Jesus doesn't immediately answer them. What he does is he instead calls a child over and asks the child to stand in front of the disciples. Jesus then uses that child as an illustration as who would even enter his kingdom. I'm not even talking about who would have any position in his kingdom. Who would even enter his kingdom? much less have any position in it. And if you remember when I covered this, I referenced how kids back in Jesus' day did not enjoy the same emphasis placed on them as we do today. They were pretty low on the social status rank. And that was Jesus' whole point when he says in Matthew 18, 3 through 4, I've got to get used to using a PowerPoint again. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Those are strong words. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That is a very strong statement to make, isn't it? Especially in light of the disciples sauntering up to him and saying, which one of us is the greatest? Jesus had a couple of points in mind when he said these words. He, the first point is his first statement in verse 3 there. Unless you turn from your sins 
and become like a child, you will not get into heaven. Wow! Point blank. Unless you, be, you, um, you turn from your sins and become like a child, you will not get into heaven. What he meant by this was that a, a simple childlike faith, not adding all these ridiculous, complicated things to it, recognizing that Jesus died on your behalf, recognizing that if you accept that sacrifice on your behalf because you are the one who sinned, then God will welcome you into his family as your father. That simple childlike faith, not adding anything else to that. Unless you repent of your sins, and unless you want God as your father by accepting that sinless Jesus died on your behalf, you will not get into heaven. This childlike faith must then extend to childlike trust in God as our perfect and good Father. If you remember, I used the illustration of when you were a little kid. If, if you had good earthly parents, and when you went to sleep at night, you didn't worry about what would happen in the middle of the night when you were asleep. Those thoughts never really entered. I mean, they would enter your mind, but then you would think, oh, mom and dad are just in the next room. There's nothing to worry about and you go back to sleep. You knew your parents were right there in the house and watching over you, and they protect you if anything happened. So even though you would have these <laughs> maybe exaggerated thoughts as a child about what would happen in the middle of the night, that would very quickly get pushed away by knowing, but it, I know everything's going to be okay because mom and dad are watching over me, and they'll take care of, any, of anything if anything happens. That's the same level of faith, and so much more so, we must have in our Heavenly Father. Because no matter if your earthly parents were good or bad, your Heavenly Father watches over you at all times and is perfectly powerful enough to protect you. You never have to worry about if you can trust your Heavenly Father or not. He will always watch over you. This was Jesus' first point. His second point is what he says in verse 4 here. So anyone who humbles himself like this child, in this child's low social status, will end up being the greatest in God's coming kingdom. Have you ever wondered, why does it seem like someone will only give their life to God once they've hit rock bottom? Why does it only seem like that? Why does it only seem like unless somebody hits rock bottom, they don't really put their faith and trust in Jesus? Why does it always seem like that? There's the answer in verse 4. That's the answer. If someone feels like they have everything all together, they don't see their need for God. But when everything is stripped away and they have nothing left, it suddenly becomes crystal clear for their need for God, that all that is left is God. And when everything is stripped away, all that is left is God. And that is not random. That is not a weakness for biblical Christianity. Some people claim that's a weakness for biblical Christianity. They might say, look, the only people who ever put their faith in Jesus and who become a part of his church are the ones who have hit rock bottom. But that's not random. That's the entire point. Any, ladies, any pew that has an enter here sign on it, you can, you can 
uh, find a spot in there. You might have to come up front more. There, there's a whole plan of that. That's not a weakness. That is how God designed things. Remember back from our first Corinthians series. Welcome. Good to see you. <laughs> right there. Very good. Remember back from our first Corinthians series that God purposely designed faith in him to only come from his Holy Spirit opening our eyes. See, God designed it that way. You can't discover it through any human conventional way. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that God purposely designed the way to salvation and restoration to him to be what society sees as the weakest and least important way. That's huge, isn't it? So when the most brilliant and arrogant minds in humanity don't believe in God and say it's impossible for God to exist, that should not come as any surprise to us. Nor should it cast any doubt. If anything, that simply confirms what Paul already wrote 2,000 years ago. That's the way God designed it for thousands of years. The way to Jesus is only through humility, and sometimes that's rock bottom. The way to Jesus is only through humility, and sometimes through the most humbling experiences one can go through. That's how you come to Jesus. And that's how many of us came to Jesus. Jesus carries that same idea through to the parable we're looking at today. For he says at the end of it, in, in, in Matthew chapter 18, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, uh, please turn to Matthew chapter 18. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Or you can download the uh, Life.Church Bible app through your app store. It's completely free. And look it up there. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 12 through 14. And like I said, the very last verse of this parable, verse 14, he says, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Luke, and his description of this same parable, connects it to the exact same truth. When Luke records this same parable, he sets it up first by describing an event. And this informs the entire record of Luke's telling of this parable. He writes, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. How do you like to be known by that? Oh, that guy, he's a notorious sinner. <laughs> and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. That's an awesome testament to who Jesus is. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. So Jesus told them the story. And what follows is the same parable that we have in Matthew 18, the parable of the lost sheep. In Luke, Jesus is eating with notorious sinners and tells the Pharisees today's parable. In Matthew, Jesus tells today's parable to his disciples while using a child to illustrate his point. So, big question is, are these two contradicting reports? Here's the question in response and the answer. Do these two reports 
have to be recording the exact same event? Or could have Jesus told this parable twice in two different scenarios? And Matthew and Luke are simply reporting two different occasions in which he told this same parable twice. Obviously, that's a perfectly reasonable answer. Both in Luke and in Matthew, Jesus' point is the same. It doesn't matter. Jesus' point is the same. And that is seen even more clearly when you look at them together. The point is the same. Humility versus arrogance. Humility versus arrogance. Arrogance, even religious arrogance, has no place in Jesus' kingdom. Only humility, and especially humbling oneself before God in the most humbling of circumstances, gains that person entrance into Jesus' kingdom. You see how that all works? That's the key. That's the secret. See, in Luke, the Pharisees were trying to call Jesus' reputation into question by complaining that he was associating with known breakers of God's standard. But the main difference was that the Pharisees saw no need to humble themselves and seek salvation. While those who had hit rock bottom in a lot of ways and were searching for something more did see that need. That was the major difference. That's what Jesus was pointing out. Those who Jesus was eating with were those who had tried living the life of doing whatever they wanted, and thinking that it would make them happy, and even and especially when it broke God's standard. Those are the ones Jesus was sitting around the table eating with. But they found out along the way, as many of us have, they found out along the way that all those things that they tried to do, even and especially when they broke God's standard, just left them empty and just left them searching for more. That's all it did. So they sought after Jesus and what he had to tell them. Jesus was exactly and all they needed to search for. Just like Jesus is exactly and all we need to search for. And so Jesus sought them out to tell them the truth of how they could be restored to God. See, Jesus wasn't just partying with a bunch of sinners in a judgment-free zone like Planet Fitness, like so many like to portray Jesus. Yes, he was hanging out with them, but for a purpose. He wasn't just partying with them. It was for a purpose. It was to tell them the truth. He didn't shy away from them, but he also wasn't accepting of their behavior and lifestyles as perfectly okay. He associated with them so that he could tell them of God's love and forgiveness from how they were living. See, that's the whole point of both Matthew's and Luke's accounts of this parable. We're going to see how powerful and relentless God's love is for us. Verses 12 through 13. What do you think? What do you think? And that's a question that all of us need to ask ourselves. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. And this is why I brought up Luke's account of this as well. I'm sure Jesus did not have 
in mind that he was only referring to children at that point and that God only cared about saving children that had gone astray. He is also clearly referring to those who have gone after what the world has to offer and have hit rock bottom. They found that all that's left them is emptiness. In this direct context, Jesus is mainly referring to the Jewish people here, comparing those who didn't think they need salvation, the Pharisees, with those who were so lost in their sin, they didn't know which way was up. But Jesus extends this elsewhere to mean that he's bringing in non-Jewish people too. And I think most of us here can declare, thank God he extended this to me, non-Jewish people too. Thank God he extended this to to us Gentiles as well. And human understanding, our gut reaction to somebody who is so lost in their sin, they don't know which way is up, is you made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. That's our gut reaction. I'm not speaking into a vacuum, right? That's our gut reaction. That's how many of us think about different people who are so lost in their sin. And that's what many of us may have said to somebody who are so lost in their sin. You made your bed, now you sleep in it. Our grace as humans only goes so far. Our mercy as humans only goes so far. But not with God. But not with God. And that reveals to us a tremendous truth about who God is. And for all of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, that is our only hope. That is our only hope. According to one biblical scholar, when a shepherd would go after a lost sheep, he wouldn't leave those still in the flock behind all alone. You might think that when you first read this over the first time, but he doesn't just leave them alone. Normally, shepherds would watch their flocks in the same vicinity. Many shepherds from, with different flocks, and each flock was usually about 100 sheep. They would watch them together in the same vicinity. So this shepherd in Jesus' parable probably left the other 99 with the other shepherds he was in the same vicinity as and said, I'll be back. I've got to go get this other sheep that wandered off. But Jesus' point was that the shepherd did not think this one sheep is gone. Oh well. Stinks to be that sheep. They're the one who wandered off. They're the one who got themselves lost. I'm not going to go after it. I don't want to involve myself with that. I'm not going to I'm I'm not going to go after it. And you know what? It deserves whatever happens to it cuz it was the one who decided to go away. To wander off. That is not what the shepherd thought. Instead, the shepherd cared so much for that sheep that he did not care what would happen to him if he went after it. When that shepherd made the decision to leave the other 99 sheep with the other shepherds and leave, he also made the decision to leave his place of safety and to put himself in danger to go looking after that sheep. See, we might not think about that part of this parable too much. When we read or think about this parable, we usually think, oh, isn't that cool that God loves us so much that he goes looking for us? But we normally don't take into account the aspect of danger that this shepherd was putting himself in. That shepherd had no clue what he would find or face 
once he found that lost sheep. That sheep could be halfway down a ravine on a very thin ledge. That sheep could be right about to be torn apart by a mountain lion. That sheep might be in the process of being stolen by armed robbers. That shepherd had no clue what he was going to find that sheep in, what state. But the shepherd made the decision back with the other flock. He made the decision to bring that sheep back no matter what danger he might face because of it. And that, brothers and sisters, tells us so much about what Jesus has done for us out of his love for us. Jesus made the, the decision as the good shepherd to leave the safety of heaven and to even leave the safety of self-righteous religious circles to willingly put himself in danger both in his ministry and ultimately by resolutely going to the cross and all the torment that went along with that. He made that decision while he was still in the place of safety of heaven. No matter what, I'm going to go after that lost sheep. So what does that tell us? That if Jesus was willing to go through that indescribable danger, there is nothing he will not face to save someone. Nothing. There is no one too far gone. There is no one in too much of a dangerous situation. There is no one too sinful for him to go after. You are not in too dark of a vicious spiral for Jesus to come after you. You are not in too hopeless of a situation for Jesus to come after you. You are not in too much of a sinful lifestyle for Jesus to come after you. He does not care what the darkness is or what the danger is. He only cares about you. He only cares about rescuing you from your sin and from your emptiness, and he only cares about breathing new life and new meaning into you. His love is relentless. His love is far-reaching. His love is powerful. But here's where we connect back to Jesus' point in Matthew's report of this parable. You have to humble yourself to accept that love. See, the Pharisees didn't see a need for Jesus' love and mercy. They thought they were good in and of themselves. They thought they were good. They didn't need a Savior. They didn't need God's love. They had it all together. It's not God's will that anyone with no hope should die apart from him. But you have to see your need for it. You have to see that Jesus is reaching out for you and take his hand and let him rescue you. He has gone off looking for you. Let him pick you up in his arms and take you back to safety. Let him bring you back to green pastures and peaceful waters and welcome you into his family. Don't keep getting yourself caught more and more in the brambles of this world. Don't keep running for the edge of the cliff of destruction. Don't keep allowing yourself to be taken by the thief of your soul. 
Listen for the good shepherd calling out your name and let him rescue you from your sin and let him rescue you from your darkness and let him rescue you from your anxiety and your fear and your depression. Let him rescue you. As Jesus says, humbling ourselves and seeing our need for a Savior from our sin and accepting Jesus as that Savior is the only way to get into heaven. It's the only way. It's the only way to get into his kingdom, and it's the only way to get into heaven. Thinking of yourself as good enough on your own. I don't need Jesus. I got it all together on my own. I don't need a savior. My sin's not that bad. Thinking of yourself as good enough on your own is guess what? How the Pharisees thought of themselves. You're not any different. You're not any special. It's exactly the same way as the Pharisees thought. And time and time and time again, who are the only group of people that Jesus ever rebukes in Scripture? The Pharisees. He doesn't rebuke anybody else. Thinking of yourself as good enough on your own is how the Pharisees thought. The only entrance that will gain you, the, the only entrance into heaven that you can gain, it, it, I'm sorry, the only entrance that you can gain from thinking that way, of thinking that you're good enough on your own, is an entrance into eternity of banishment from God's presence and physical and emotional torment like we've been talking about. That's the only entrance that you're help, heading towards humbling yourself and accepting what Jesus has done for you by opening the door for salvation and rescue and accepting that on your behalf is the only way we can get to heaven. Jesus' relentless love has come after you. And even after you take a hold of his hand and let you bring him into the fold of peace, his love will always still come after you. If you knew of Jesus in the past, but you've since gone astray, even for years, know that Jesus' love is still coming after you. If, you. if you knew of Jesus in the past, and you've since gone astray, Jesus' love is still coming after you. He will never, ever, ever give up on you. Come back to him as he's calling out your name. Get things right again with God and come back under his protection. Give up everything that's only left you empty-handed. Give up the darkness. Give up the hopelessness. Let all of that go because there's no future in that. As this pandemic has taught us, this world can get pretty crazy and get pretty crazy pretty quickly. This world has nothing to offer to us. There's no future here. There's only destruction. Jesus is calling out your name and coming after you. Come running back into his open arms. All you'll find there is love and freedom. That's what you'll find there.
That's what sets Jesus' love apart from everything else and anything else in this world. His love is eternal. His love breaks down barriers. It smashes chains. It destroys prisons. His love knows no limits and has no restrictions for how far it will go. Your sin is not too horrible for him to forgive you. Your situation is not too dark for him to rescue you from. And your past is not too traumatic for him to heal. He, he will face any and every dangerous situation to come get you. That is how powerful his love is. He will never, ever give up on you. So whether you've come to Jesus, whether you've never come to Jesus, or whether you've gone astray from him, even for years, he is here right now. He's found you, and that churning in your heart right now is testament to that. His love has found you. Grab that outstretched hand. Come to his wide open arms, and finally find that peace you've craved for your entire life. Because you want to know why? Jesus does not stop there. He doesn't just stop at picking you up and bringing you home. As soon as he scoops you up, he starts picking the brambles out of your wool. He starts drying your tears. He starts healing your wounds. His love starts to heal any trauma or any emotional wounds you've suffered in your life. His love starts to show you the hope of God, both for eternity and for life right now. His love starts to release from chains and addictions and debilitating self-image issues. And his love starts to heal damage you thought was once irreparable in your family. His love is all-powerful, and it will start to go to work, and it will start changing things. And God promises that he will never leave you, never abandon you, and never forsake you. In fact, he promises that the transformation and the healing and the restoration he starts on you will never end until you will either go to be with him or he comes back for you. God promises to provide for your every need and sustains you with his word and communing with you in prayer. If you feel weak right now, especially during this crisis, let me ask you this question. Are you spiritually eating? Are you spiritually eating? Are you craving his word? Are you craving communing with him? Because that is what will sustain you. That is what will empower you. That is what will give you the strength to fight another day. If you feel weak right now, go back to his word. Go back to communing with him in prayer. It's very simple. Once Jesus rescues you, God's word tells us that he will give us green pastures to rest in and lead us along quiet waters. It doesn't matter what is raging around us. It doesn't even matter what's raging around us or even raging within us. Are you finding your peace in Jesus? Are you finding your peace in Jesus? Or are you pointlessly giving that up? There's no reason to give that up. Are you pointlessly giving that up? to fill yourself with worry and fear. Remember, Paul told, the Apostle Paul tells Pastor Timothy, we have not been given a spirit of fear, 
We have not been given a spirit of timidity. It doesn't matter what sickness is going on in this world. It doesn't matter what state restrictions are in place. It doesn't matter what economies are failing or anything. We have not been given a spirit of fear. What have we been given? We have been given a spirit of love and a spirit of boldness and a spirit of sound mind. I'm not making that up. That comes directly out of Scripture. So we can think clearly through things. Even as everybody around us is running around their chick- like a chicken with their head cut off, declaring the sky is falling, we can say, I know the truth. I'm not going to run around flailing my arms around because my anchor is anchored to the, to the rock, to the unshakable rock. Let Jesus lead you back to those abundant pastures of rest and quiet waters of peace. Jesus is our good shepherd, and he will do whatever it takes to rescue us and to give us all that we need. If we've gone astray or we've never accepted him as our shepherd, answer his call right now. He's calling out to you. Answer his call right now. And if you've been a part of his flock for years, be sustained by his word and be filled with his peace. Jesus makes a similar illustration to all of this elsewhere when he says this, and this is what I want to close with this morning. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. Remember, one way, humbling yourself through Jesus. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures, green pastures, quiet waters. The thief's purpose is to kill and steal and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That is what our good shepherd wants to do for us. Let him rescue you. Let him give you that. Let him fill you with his peace. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful words. We thank you for what it offers to us. Lord, I pray that if we've never answered the call of you, we would do so today. We would recognize who we are as sinners before you, recognize that you, as sinless, took our place on the cross, paid the payment of death for our sin, that we had no hope of paying. Let us accept that. Let us ask you for forgiveness of that sin. And let us seek to please you with the rest of our lives. Let us, let you rescue us. Rescue us from that sin. Rescue us from that darkness. And be welcomed into your family. Lord, you never promise that we will never face hardship. We will face hardship. But we will face that hardship with you. With you on our side. With you within us. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, if we've been following you for years, but we feel weak now, we feel disturbed, we feel unsettled, Lord, I pray we'd go back to where it all began. We'd go back to your word. We'd go back to spending time with you. We'd go back to talking with you. And let us be filled with the peace that only the Holy Spirit can give. Let today be a turning point in our lives to come back to you, to let you rescue us, and to be filled with that peace, and to let you give us that rich and satisfying life. 
And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out.